All right, hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And uh, today I'm joined by a, a former guest. He's been on a couple times before, John Loken. Hey, John. Hey there, Dale. Awesome. Hey. Welcome back. Hey. Welcome. Welcome back there. And yeah, uh, so today, uh, John Loken, he's going to introduce himself just for the benefit of those who haven't um, seen him in the previous shows there. But um, we're kind of going over a couple topics related to a show, a solo show I did. Uh, I think it was panel review uh, show part 2A or something like that, where I kind of went over the issue of Galatians chapter 3 verse 1 and also um, the Abgar legend in the Eusebius text. And John here has uh, kind of the opposite opinion of what I got. So he wants to present the other side of that. But uh, yeah, before we go any further, John, I just want to uh, put it over to you to kind of introduce the audience for, for those who don't know you. Who who are you and what's your relationship to the Shroud and, and today's topics? Sure. Thanks a lot, uh, Dale. Um, first of all, I might mention I'll be uh, uh, mostly reading from a script I've prepared. And after just a minute or so, we will uh, uh, switch to audio only just for the sake of the audience uh, being able to uh, follow it better. Sometimes faces can be distracting, actually, and uh, take away from the actual words that are spoken. So uh, that's the general situation. Uh, the topic of uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, written uh, uh, roughly the mid-first century, that's uh, what we'll be talking about, uh, mostly me. Uh, it's a historical issue, of course, has nothing at all to do with the science and the forensic findings about the Shroud, so strictly uh, uh, historical linguistics, too, um, and geography. Um, this will be a long uh, exchange, uh, and so I might just suggest to uh, listeners and viewers, if you would like to uh, shorten it, you can easily do that. Uh, most of you know how to do that. Just switch uh, the playback speed to, say, 1.25 of normal, or even 1.5 of normal, and that will save you many minutes. If you, uh, if you really like to hear chipmunk chatter, you can switch it to twice normal speed uh, for fun. So uh, moving on here, uh, the, the general situation is a recent claim to, uh, uh, I might actually go to, uh, to audio only now. Here we are, if I can manage. Here we are. And uh, a recent claim made about the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, uh, as being a reference to the uh, Turin Shroud. I reject that claim. I don't think it's uh, correct. Uh, the passage in Paul's letter briefly uh, reads, the most important parts of it reads, O foolish Galatians, uh, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was presented crucified. Um, that claim has wide-ranging implications if it is true, the claim that uh, uh, the Turin Shroud was actually shown to the Galatian Christians in the mid-first century. Uh, Galatia, or Galatia, as it was called, uh, was a Roman province in the middle of Anatolia, and uh, so it was quite far away from uh, Jerusalem and the Levant. Um, and I think it's risky for uh, that claim to be made in the in the Turnshaw field because uh, it's uh, a weak one. Um, 
my involvement in this issue uh, is uh, interesting, deserves maybe a couple of minutes. Uh, uh, most people researching the Turin Shroud focus on uh, forensic aspects, microscopic matters, um, anatomy, image formation theories, etc. cetera. Uh, very few are currently doing history, the history of the Shroud. Um, several of the greats in the field have passed on in recent years, and others are, are more elderly in their 80s and not active. Uh, so I'm one of the very few who uh, pursues the history of the Shroud. I'm not a professor, I have no PhD, but I do have degrees in history and in literature. And I know some Greek too, which comes in handy. Uh, I'm a believer in the probable authenticity of the Turin Shroud as the real burial shroud of Jesus of Nazareth in the first century. And I believe that for about 20 years. Uh, I've also been active in the Turin Shroud field for about 20 years, on and off both uh, an online forum, and have written a couple of articles. I'm also an agnostic. I'm not a Christian, and I've been an agnostic for almost 40 years now, since the 80s. And I'm one of the very few agnostics in the field. Uh, uh, even fewer of them uh, believe in the authenticity of the Shroud. As for Galatians, I first heard about uh, the claim in 2014, so that was just seven, seven years ago. I found it interesting. I had no opinion about it, and I also had no time to research it. So six years passed. In uh, 2020, I again heard of the claim uh, from two researchers, and I looked into it then, and I found it very weak. And I wrote to them and got no reply or minimal reply about the issue. One of the researchers uh, that same year wrote some four to five different versions of this claim, uh, posted them online. Uh, so he was very prolific about it. Uh, that's rather unusual, shall we say. Uh, in 2020, then, uh, a book came out uh, on the Shroud, the history, hidden history of the Shroud of Turin, and it had a six-page chapter on Galatians 3.1 as an allusion to the Shroud. Um, I, find, I found that chapter uh, very faulty. Uh, in 2022, um, a long thread on a Shroud blog appeared, uh, pro and con on the Galatians question. I did not participate myself, but wrote uh, my own private analysis, uh, uh, about three pages long, pretty dense, and posted it on a Shroud forum. Um, I heard nothing more, uh, no replies, and I assumed that it was persuasive, rejecting Galatians 3.1 as a turn shroud illusion. However, early in 2023, I became aware of a few others in the, the field supporting the, uh, uh, the identification. It seemed to be a growing movement. Uh, I was rather surprised and even alarmed, so I drafted an article on the subject, uh, uh, refuting or contradicting the claim. Um, and so it went on. Uh, uh, there was a, a rather uh, long exchange uh, on, in an online forum in uh, June and July. Um, a month ago then, in November 2023, uh, the pro-Galatians case was presented on uh, two different podcasts, uh, uh, at least once by uh, the most uh, enthusiastic supporter. And... Uh, Let's see, he also happens to have, uh, uh, well, it's 
closely related. He believes that he has spotted uh, the Turin Shroud in several letters of Paul, the Apostle Paul, and uh, uh, some of them are extremely flimsy, in my opinion. Uh, he refers to the cloak in Paul's letter, 2 Timothy, chapter 4, uh, verse 13, I believe, uh, the cloak that Paul requests, uh, and this shroud researcher believes that that cloak is a reference to the Turin shroud, or possibly a reference. Okay, he he uh, doesn't claim it as a certainty or a probability, but he does repeatedly claim it to be a possible reference, and I think that has no no validity whatsoever. Um, also, uh, the same researcher uh, mentions Paul's passage in Corinthians, I believe 1 Corinthians, uh, about a, a mirror dimly, or in uh, King James Version, I believe, uh, through a glass darkly. And he believes that's a reference to the Turin Shroud. Again, I think it's far-fetched. Um, and I think the mainstream uh, academics and Turin Shroud skeptics will scoff at these uh, claims, and that would bring the Turin Shroud and the field into disrepute, and that worries me. So enough about me and the recent background developments. Um, I'll make some general comments now. Uh, <clears throat> I think the Galatians claim is based on mere coincidence of a couple of words, also a bit of fantasy and possibly personal factors involved. Uh, let's face it, coincidence does exist and is very active in all our lives, and it makes similar things seem identical when they are not. Uh, the motivations of the two main, uh, most prominent Galatians uh, supporters need to be understood. Uh, both are Christians and supernaturalist Christians, like most all others in the field. Uh, one is a relative newcomer to the field and uh, a former minister and has not done, to my knowledge, any other uh, Turin Shroud research of his own that I know of. So he may uh, he may wish uh, for these claims of his to, to make a mark on the field. Everyone in the field uh, wants to make a contribution of some sort, uh, but that's important to keep in mind. Uh, many people are fascinated by the Turin Shroud uh, and uh, just think today of all of the uh, YouTube videos and podcasts that are out there. Uh, People think they see the Turin Shroud everywhere, it seems sometimes. Uh, let's see, the other researcher then uh, is almost the opposite. He has been in the field for uh, 30 years or so and uh, presented uh, several talks at conferences and written many articles. Um, also, he is a, a, a historian, a former uh, lawyer as well. Uh, however, he has a certain uh, interest in his uh, Galatians claim, and that is he has tried as hard as he can to locate the Turin Shroud in Antioch, uh, today Antakya in southern Turkey, and uh, he believes that the Shroud went from Jerusalem up to Antioch and did not go to Edessa, which is the, the mainstream position in the field. Um, and so Galatia being closer to Antioch than it is to Edessa, um, it's convenient for his uh, 
his uh, agenda, you might say. Uh, let's see. The two main supporters, then, they actually have differences between them. Uh, they, uh, one, the first one I mentioned, he has primarily considered that Paul was the one who carried the shroud to Galatia. And the other researcher thinks that the Apostle Peter was the one who did that. Um, the second uh, Galatians supporter also has never, to my knowledge, expressed any support for those uh, several other claims of shroud sightings in the letters of Paul made by, by that first supporter um, or enthusiast, I might, I might uh, say. Um, in fact, I don't know anyone at all in the field who has specifically backed such claims of the Turin Shroud being present or possibly present in Rome or Troas, uh, which is ancient Troy near Istanbul today, or in Corinth. Um, yeah. So there seems a, a considerable degree, disagreement uh, between them. Uh, it's been kept fairly quiet uh, uh, for their individual purposes, but there is that apparent disagreement. Uh, now, regardless of my own take, my own view of the Galatians' claim, uh, I will say that everyone should realize that the Galatians' claim uh, and the related claims as well are truly radical ones. They are a radical departure from previous research on the Turin Shroud. Why is that? Three reasons, I think. Uh, the far-flung geography involved, uh, hundreds, even thousands of miles, and I'll go into more detail. Also, the, the very skimpy words that are used to justify the claims. And then three, the openness uh, with which the shroud was <clears throat> or is supposed to have been shown in public uh, here, there, and almost everywhere, it seems sometimes to me. Um, uh, taking those points one by one, geographically, the claim takes the Turin Shroud on a journey or journeys in the middle of the first century. This is just 20 years after uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and a journey for hundreds and even thousands of miles or kilometers uh, to the west of the Levant. Uh, up until now, almost every Turin Shroud authenticity supporter in the field has thought that the, uh, the Shroud remained somewhere in the east, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, either in Jerusalem still, or up in Edessa, or maybe in Antioch, or elsewhere, but somewhere far to the east there in the mid-first century. So this uh, new Galatians claim is really radical geographically. In addition to being distant, uh, uh, those journeys also took an enormous amount of time, um, months, many months, even over a year. Uh, Paul was on the road. He was traveling far and wide. Uh, so the time factor must be taken into consideration and the conditions as well. Uh, travel in those days. It was a dirty business. It was very dangerous. Just think back to the first century. Um, some relevant distances I'll mention here. Um, Antioch to Troas, uh, which again is close to Istanbul today, that's about 750 miles one way as the crow flies. Uh, 
And of course, Paul and Peter, they were not crows. They could not fly. They had no airplanes at their service. So their trips were actually more roundabout. And when you think of the, uh, uh, the return trip as well, you're winding up with about a 2,000 mile trip uh, if the shroud was taken to Troas. The same is in the case, uh, or even, even more so in the case with the claim that the shroud was taken to Corinth, which is in Greece, mainland Greece. Uh, that would have been a trip of, of well over 2,000 miles. <clears throat> um, even uh, uh, Antioch to Galatia or Galatia alone would have been uh, approximately 250 to 350 miles one way. I think that's around 400 to 500 uh, kilometers. Uh, and then round trip uh, would double it and, and even more. Uh, Paul went there uh, uh, partly by ship. Uh, so moving on, um, uh, you, when you think of these distances, you wonder whether the, the shroud was a burial cloth or, or a magic carpet uh, sometimes. Uh, now then, the claim is also flimsy because of the words uh, used. Uh, I, I just mentioned those above, so I'll skip over that. Um, but it's also radically different in proposing that it was widely shown to many people, um, potential converts during those far-flung travels around the Mediterranean and throughout Anatolia. Uh, these claims involve uh, very public showings, hundreds of people, maybe not at a time, uh, but dozens certainly each time, and uh, uh, possibly a total of a thousand. You know, uh, nobody would have taken the shroud for 2,000 miles and shown it only to one small group of 10 people. So uh, the implication is that it was shown to uh, a few hundred, possibly many hundreds of people. Um, and instead, in the field, the traditional belief has been that the shroud was kept secret. It was kept uh, hidden for its own safety for the first century or two of its existence, or even more. Uh, would have been shown certainly to some people, um, but very probably only to a few, only to the chosen, the really deserving Christians, uh, the uh, the leaders. Uh, um, and needless to say, there's no documentation whatsoever of any ancient showings of the shroud to the public uh, and in those far-flung locations. Uh, so enough on generalities. I'll move into uh, now into uh, Paul's uh, action. Go ahead. Uh, is uh, Sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but I, I have a question that's directly relevant to this because, um, so I, I just want to admit, uh, look, uh, on, on my video there also, uh, Jack Markwart um, is one of the experts that you're sure. talking about here. Uh, and uh, he, gave, he gave me a critique because in my uh, video that we're reviewing here in part 2A, the panel review summary show, I'm, I uh, mentioned this, my own idea, I posited maybe, maybe there's something like a proto-discipline of the secret. And um, Jack was quick to point out that, but there's no scholarship on that. It, it's So my understanding is that the discipline of the secret, if it's true, this might actually support what you're saying, because they wouldn't be showing it to just ordinary Christians then. So I, yeah. I just wanted to, yeah, like, doesn't the discipline of the secret, if it is in its fullness, doesn't that speak against 
the shroud being shown to ordinary Galatian believers or what's your take on that? Yeah, I think you're quite right, Dale. Uh, and, and that's one uh, problem I had with uh, that particular view of uh, the shroud being shown widely in, in public uh, because one of the researchers, especially uh, the second one I mentioned, uh, I won't name names myself. It's not really that important. I think most people know who we're talking about. Um, and just to keep it more objective. Uh, but that person does, uh, and he's a scholar for sure. Uh, but he does claim uh, that there was this uh, discipline of the secret, which existed in, in the first century, second century uh, of, the, of the church. And he's correct about that, but uh, it does contradict, like you just noticed, uh, it contradicts the claim that the shroud was taken around and shown in public then. So I don't see how they can have it both ways uh, very easily. Gotcha. So, good yeah, point. Good yeah, point. Thank, thanks for that. That's, that's why I kind of suspect maybe there was some kind of proto-discipline. But yeah, over to you. Sorry to interrupt. I'll let you finish your presentation well, Delicious. Right. Thanks. And any time, any time at all, please do feel free. Um, right. cool. So uh, Galatians, uh, I think I was just reading out the most important words there. Uh, oh, you foolish Galatians, Paul wrote, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was presented crucified. Uh, now, there are different versions of that uh, um, sentence in from the Greek. It's been translated many different ways. Uh, Dale, I'm not sure if you have a, a list from Bible.com uh, showing maybe 10, at least 10 uh, different translations of the uh, phrase out of Paul's original Greek. Um, if people are interested in, in, there we go, there we go, uh, interested in seeing how many different ways the, the Bible verses have been translated, they can go to uh, Bible.com, Bible, excuse me, Biblehub.com, and enter in any specific uh, trend uh, verse they wish. So uh, I believe there are serious problems in interpreting any of those uh, words with uh, as being the, the Turin Shroud. Uh, let's begin with uh, Jesus Christ crucified, okay? Now, on the face of it, I admit fully that that does sound like the Turin shroud. That's what we see, Jesus Christ crucified on the shroud. Vaguely, it's a vague reference. The specifics are lacking. There is, in that phrase of Paul's, there is no mention of any cloth or shroud or sindon, the ancient Greek word for shroud, or linen, uh, no mention of a body, of a face, of an image, of a picture, no mention of blood or wounds. So all of these particulars are missing uh, from Paul's uh, phrase. And uh, there have been other cryptic passages in uh, ancient Christian writings which have included those words. And they therefore have uh, much more claim to being uh, possible references to the shroud uh, but in Galatians, none of those words are found. So now then, the combination of the, the name Jesus and Christ, the title Christ, is very common in Paul's letters. Uh, 
And that's a fact which the supporters of the Galatians Shroud identification do not tell their readers. In the four Gospels, we, we typically read of uh, Jesus doing this, Jesus saying that, and fairly rarely is the word Christ used about him. But in Paul's letters, the situation is very different. Paul uses the phrase Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus uh, many dozens of times, maybe even a hundred times in all of his uh, seven or eight authentic letters. Uh, so that is really nothing special, no, no reason to think that's an allusion to uh, the tour in the shroud. Uh, the same goes for the word crucified. Uh, the supporters of the Galatians Turin Shroud identification do not tell their readers that Paul uses, uses that word often in his letters. Um, also, the related word cross, he, he uh, uses that often as well. Um, crucified is actually Paul's leitmotif. It's his first principle in his theology. Uh, he's known, of course, for preaching Christ crucified as opposed to the, uh, the older uh, uh, religious regulations uh, of, uh, of Judaism. So he was very keen on the atonement, the substitutionary punishment uh, for the sins of mankind. Uh, the full phrase, Jesus Christ crucified, or, or a close variation of it, even occurs three to four other times in the short letter of the Galatians itself. And in no other instance could it possibly refer to the Turin Shroud, um, but again, only to, to Paul's general uh, theology. And the supporters of the, the uh, Shroud identification do not inform their readers of this very relevant fact, uh, the frequency of that phrase, even in Galatians itself. To me, that's very dubious procedure. Um, anyone can read Galatians very quickly. By the way, it's a short letter, two to three pages long, uh, takes just five minutes, and, and you'll see what I mean. Um, so I think uh, what Paul basically means by Jesus Christ crucified is simply the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus Christ crucified uh, when he uses that phrase in, in Galatians. Um, moving on, and before your eyes or before whose eyes, uh, in, in Greek, uh, it's, I think, oiskat uh, ophthalmos. And... Uh, uh, this phrase, uh, it's not what it seems. Uh, to begin with, all three of the main uh, Galatians supporters have, have added in their writings an additional word to the phrase, either the word own or the word very. Uh, and they have done so repeatedly, not just once or twice, but repeatedly. Um, and so according to them, Paul's uh, phrase reads before your very eyes or before your own eyes and of course that makes the phrase sound very visual very very visual when it's really not so visual as i will explain paul does not write own or very or anything similar okay it's just an english idiom we all know it we all use it you know, with my very eyes you know so uh uh, moreover, the word eyes is used several hundred times in the Bible, often in a non-literal sense. It's used metaphorically, figuratively, symbolically. Uh, for example, you've all heard this one. Uh, his eyes were opened. 
Okay, what does that mean? It means that he, whoever he is, in a particular passage, uh, now understood or perceived or knew. Okay, it's not a visual reference. No. Um, check any Bible dictionary under the word eyes, uh, maybe if you're close to a university library, and you'll you'll read this basic information. And it's the same with many other physical words uh, used in the Bible, like, like the word mouth, for example, which is often used metaphorically. Um, even the very phrase, uh, before your eyes, or a close variation on it, is used at least a couple dozen times in the Bible, often in a non-literal sense. It's a stock phrase, a filler phrase. Uh, the Bible is very wordy, as we all know. Lots of repetition. And uh, uh, in my opinion, in Galatians, it could very well mean simply, in your presence, in your presence, you uh, uh, heard the, or were presented with the uh, message of Jesus Christ crucified. So moving on, uh, let's see here. The second, whoopsie, hold on. You still, are you still wanting me to share my screen with something? Or? Uh, you could, uh, let's see, maybe um, uh, drop that one. Okay. Um, uh, another source for Paul's use of the word eyes uh, could have been a more personal one and relating specifically to his eyes. Um, he uh, may well have had an eye malady of some sort. Um, many New Testament scholars have wondered about that, maybe glaucoma, something else. Uh, in Galatians itself, he actually says, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Okay, and that again is a phrase which uh, none of the Galatians uh, supporters uh, mention to their readers in their uh, attempt to persuade their readers that uh, uh, Paul's 3.1 refers to the turn shroud. They don't mention that. Uh, Paul was also a poet and, and very skilled with the language. And sometimes he used eyes or sight in a figurative sense. We all know the wonderful phrase, in the twinkling of an eye. Um, and also another very important point is that uh, not only objects, but also actions and incidents and experiences can appear before one's eyes. Uh, a dog can run before your eyes, a car can drive, a bird can fly, uh, a sermon can be preached, uh, a lecture can be given. All of these uh, events, experiences, uh, can be seen uh, not only individual objects, physical objects. So uh, uh, enough of that. Moving on then, there is finally the, the Greek verb it's a verb called uh, proegraphe and uh in uh, in galatians 3.31 uh, it uh is a past tense verb in the passive voice uh the uh, dictionary entry form is prografo um, prografo has many different meanings in the bible it occurs uh, i believe two maybe three times in the letters of paul or in the new testament and uh, both times, if I recall right, uh, in a temporal sense, to write before, in other words, to write before a certain other time. Uh, 
in English, we might say, as I wrote before. Uh, so that's a, an example. Uh, it can also, the same verb can also have a locative sense, location, uh, to write something or to proclaim something, to present something, portray something in front of others, in front of other people. And that is its meaning in Galatians 3.1. Uh, it can mean certainly to post something up on a wall, a sign, a placard, uh, information. Uh, but that is far from the only meaning that it has. Um, although it, that particular meaning is the one that the Shra, the uh, Galatians 3.1 supporters very strongly promote and knowing that the same verb has other meanings. Um, if you go to a large university library with a, a theology section, you can easily find a dozen or more books on uh, written by New Testament scholars on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Each of those books uh, will have two to three pages devoted to uh, analyzing verse uh, one of chapter three. And the professors generally have no problem interpreting uh, uh, the, that verb in the sense of Paul's uh, proclaiming or announcing or declaring uh, his message. Um, it is, prografo is admittedly a, a graphic verb with a basic meaning of to write or perhaps to draw, but its extended meaning and use can cover um, cases uh, involving speech alone. In English, we do the same thing. Uh, with verbs like portray or picture or paint. Uh, if I say, um, hey, that's a pretty picture you paint. What do I mean? Am I referring to uh, your painting with uh, tangible materials, uh, uh, watercolors or oil? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm referring just to the words that you just spoke. That's all. Other languages, probably every language in the world does the same thing. I know Italian does it, French does it, um, modern Greek probably does it too. So people love to use vivid language, figurative language to liven up their expressions. Uh, um, now, there's a problem with that verb too. Uh, one of the Galatians uh, enthusiasts has in his book chapter repeatedly changed Paul's original verb into a noun. And he's done this six, seven, maybe eight times. So that instead of the word reading openly presented or clearly portrayed, he writes it instead as a clear portrayal. Okay, making it a noun. Why does he do this? Well, I think it's pretty, pretty obvious that he does that because the word portrayal sounds like more, sounds like an object, a thing, and therefore like the Turin Shroud. So that fits his agenda, but that's not the word that Paul wrote. Paul wrote a verb. Now, finishing up the linguistic evidence, let's turn now to geography, which is an area completely neglected by the supporters of Galatians 3.1. They seem unaware of basic uh, geographical facts. Uh, they just don't mention it in their writings. So um, let's see, hold on. Are you, are you um, wanting me to share the map? 
Or, uh, please, yeah, at this point, that would be great. So I, I think sometimes they may, they may have just looked briefly at a, a small map of the Near East and said, uh, hmm, Jerusalem to uh, Galatia, that's only four inches. That's not so far. You know, <laughs> they simply don't take into account the hundreds and thousands of miles that are involved. Uh, there we are. Yeah, you can see uh, a little bit small on my screen here, but there we are in uh, Judea. Is that what that says, where your arrow is? Uh, yeah, hang, hang on. I'm just going to see if I can maximize it, maybe. So, all right, so now it's sharing everything. Um, so um, as mentioned before, uh, yes. right, there you got the whole Mediterranean, Rome close to the middle of it, um, and then the eastern Mediterranean, Syria and uh Judea, it says, uh, yeah. can also be called Palestine. And then uh, where it says uh, Cilicia, uh, that is the area where Antioch uh, Antioch was in antiquity. And then Galatia, it looks to be on the screen, it looks to be very close. Now we're talking mountains and deserts and rivers and, and everything else. <clears throat> it's about 250 miles from uh, uh, just the nearest border of Galatia. And what Paul did on his first journey was to go from Antioch first to Cyprus and then up to uh, Lycia there, northwest of Cyprus. And then there we go. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. And then he went into Galatia uh, from west actually to east, wound up uh, finally in Derbe, and, and then he retraced his steps. So he went back in the same direction. <clears throat> And the entire journey was like 1,200 miles or so. Um, and again, they don't tell you this, the, uh, the supporters of the identification of Galatians 3.1 with the shroud. Um, let's see here. <clears throat> what else to say? Uh, the problems, besides the distance, besides the sheer distance, uh, of course, it took many months, uh, over a year, uh, to travel these long distances. Um, and then there was the conditions I mentioned uh, before. Um, and let's get into those a, a bit. Uh, the dangers and the dirt, the storms, the, the mud, you know, the raging rivers, uh, the cold, the heavy seas. Uh, Paul was shipwrecked uh, three or four times in his uh, four um, uh, missionary journeys. Uh, thieves at night, robbers by day, uh, vermin, fires, you know, all of these experiences. If anyone is interested in taking notes, uh, they might want to check out Paul's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, where he gives a, a detailed account of all of the many problems or, or just some of the many problems that he encountered on his journeys. Um, so, uh, yeah, please do that. And you'll know from his own mouth, from his own mouth. Um, and he knew that all of those problems existed before he even went out on his first journey. He was well enough uh, acquainted with conditions on the road. So he was not naive. Huh? I... Uh... Hmm? I don't know if you're going to address it, but um, can, I, can I interject with kind of a, a probing? Please. Because 
Uh, this on this front, this this objection from geography and being able to travel and that sort of thing. So I, I, I know that you're aware. I referenced uh, Craig Keener's uh, Axe commentary. Um, I had uh, an excellent scholar in Axe and stuff. He was, he's been on my show talking about his commentary. But on the other side of things, I can see people saying, but look, the first century Rome was the ideal time in the... I mean, the Romans built the infrastructure for to travel, so people were traveling these long distances in relative safety. I mean, not on the same level as we today, but you know, for example, they would have these mansions every like a day's journey, every so often, every day's journey kind of thing to sleep in safety, or people could travel would travel in groups for safety, especially Jews. They would they would do that. So what would you say if people would say, but there were ways at least to mitigate against these dangers. So it's, it's not implausible that someone could have traveled all, all this way. Right. Um, and just uh, one last thing to add to, to the question there is one thing I also thought, is, I mean, think about our, are bandits and thieves really a danger to the shroud? I mean, they're not Christian, so there's no significance to them. Are they really going to want some bloody cloth that, uh, you know, to steal a cloth that uh, wrapped a corpse. No, they're probably going to leave that behind. Give me your, give me your money type thing. So, how would you respond to that sort of objection to to your? Sure. Yeah. Very good question. Excellent question, Dale. Thank you. Uh, and I believe I can respond to that and and answer it well. Um, first of all, let's uh, uh, discuss uh, lodging. Okay. Um, I've never. I never thought that Paul was sleeping out on the side of the road every night of his journey. Um, uh, well aware that they, the Romans did have a certain infrastructure in place uh, for travelers, um, but it was still it was very very primitive in those days. We're not talking about uh, you know individual rooms in a, a Hilton or a Holiday Inn. Um, these were just uh, uh, you know flea bitten uh, or whatever uh, primitive. Uh, Inns. Uh, you use the word mansions. Uh, now that's that's an ancient uh, Latin word, and uh, in those days it did not mean the mansions that we mean today. You know, the, the homes of the rich and the famous. Uh, it was just a, a wayside inn. Um, so there's that. They were sleeping all and probably together in one big dormitory, probably not even with beds, maybe just uh, mattresses on the floor. So there's that. Um, Keener, you mentioned him, a great scholar of especially of uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, I've read that same chapter of his, uh, volume one, chapter 17. I believe it's called geographical considerations, uh, something like that, about 15 pages long. And he goes into quite a bit of detail. Uh, he does say that there were roads, paved roads, uh, stoned uh, and so on. And then these inns periodically, maybe every 10 to 15 miles. Uh, uh, but uh, the dangers still remain, uh, you know, if someone is caught out in the open in a storm, a ferocious storm, you know, you, you don't have any recourse. The most you can do is to hope there's a cave nearby or a tree you can hide under. Um, but uh, there must have been many times when there was not. Uh, and so they must have gotten soaked. Also, uh, such infrastructure doesn't help you much if you're 
a little a barge across a river happens to hit a rock and sink. Um, and Keener was also very well aware of the problem of robbers and thieves. He repeatedly mentions that problem and how everybody on the road was afraid of robbers and thieves. Uh, a certain protection can be afforded by group travel, um, but then maybe people weren't always available to, to have as companions. Um, also at night, uh, you know, stealthy stealing from one leather sack uh, can't be helped if your uh, road companions are all asleep. So there's that factor. Um, let's see. Um, moving on. And, and then just the dirt and grime of the, uh, the travel. Uh, I don't see how uh, Paul or Peter would, would have taken the shroud along oh, did for, you, uh, for many months. Go ahead. Oh, just the, the last aspect, too. Uh, this, so this didn't come from Keener, but I'm just curious. Like, what? Let's say even there were thieves. Maybe, maybe Paul did get robbed every once in a while. Why on earth would some pagan thief who doesn't know or care who Jesus is, why would he want to steal the shroud? Like, it, it would, he would leave that behind. He wouldn't want to touch a, a burial yep. shroud with blood on it and stuff. Uh, that's a good point. However, a lot of thieves don't know what they are stealing, they just they act quick. They're very quick about it. They just grab what they can. If they see something that looks like a, a piece of material of uh, fiber, fabric, which could be useful to them. Uh, and we don't know where it was stored either. Uh, it's, it's very interesting, actually. You mentioned this point because um, at least one of the, the two main uh, Galatians supporters that I've been speaking of, he says that the, uh, uh, he tried to object that the, the shroud uh, could have been kept clean of, of dirt and all by by being encased in a in a very special bag or a box, you know. And uh, uh, if that were so, then such a box would have appeared to any thieves, any robbers, all the more uh, enticing, you know. If a, a protected box with a, maybe a lock on it, they would have simply stolen the, the entire box with them, uh, taken it off uh, somewhere. So that argument doesn't really work very well at all, uh, I think. Um, Fair so. enough. Yeah, thank Fair you enough. so much for, for answering that at all. And, and just for the audience, uh, before I'll let you get back and finish off your presentation, sure. uh, so John doesn't want to mention names. Thank you for, for being polite. I, I will mention, so he's talking about Larry Stolle. I think it's important. The audience, check out both sides, in the John's case and to Larry's case, and you know, be a real seeker, decide for yourself. But yeah, thank you so yes. much. Yeah, true. Very much so. Um, yeah, it's important to, to try to balance things, uh, listen to both sides, of course. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, let's see. And uh, let's see. Then one, uh, and then I'll finish with uh, uh, the Galatians question in about uh, three, four minutes here. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, again, the shroud, uh, if it's a case of the Turin shroud having been the actual burial shroud of Jesus, it would have been the most precious item in all of Christianity. And uh, I can't imagine that the, uh, the early Christians would have allowed it to go on such uh, dangerous, dangerous travels for months on end and thousands of miles. Um, one uh, alternative to the Paul scenario is that the Apostle Peter was the one who took it uh, 
course, he would have faced the same uh, problems and conditions. Uh, one one uh, uh, supposed evidence, piece of supposed evidence for Peter doing so or going on travels, uh, at least uh, extensive travels through Anatolia, is uh, proposed uh, by uh, uh, one of these researchers who quotes, uh, uh, well, he doesn't quote, but he just paraphrases uh, very questionably a book by Glanville Downey from 1960, and it was called, uh, I believe, The History of Antioch. Uh, now, Downey in that book, he says merely that it seems likely that Peter lived in Antioch for several years and made some excursions outside the city during that time. Okay, quote, seems, un, seems likely, unquote. Quote, excursions, unquote. That statement then was used by one of these researchers, uh, recent researchers, uh, uh, and it was misrepresented mis, uh, 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 such that uh, Peter used Antioch as a base for his journeys into Anatolia. Uh, so uh, that's an unfortunate case of, uh, of misuse of, of the sources. Um, finally, then the, the audience of um, Paul or Peter uh, or anyone who might have conceivably taken the turn shroud around with them, we're talking about an audience of insignificant peasants, uh, town folk, a wide range of intelligence among them, uh, mostly low or only average intelligence. Very few people were literate in those days. Um, just imagine the scenario involving a shroud. Uh, there must have been, or there would have been, uh, many scoffers among the people. Uh, uh, people would have wanted to handle it. Uh, they might even have, uh, out of natural curiosity, they might have uh, tried to rub rub the image off of it. Uh, and they had no no microscopes to examine it with forensically, and they probably would have uh, just thought that it was an odd, large sweat stain made by the body of a crucified dead man they never knew. So again, what, what would be the point of bringing it along? Um, now, finally, the question of the Apostle Paul and the Turin Shroud, that's a very interesting one. It's a mystery to this day, and we don't know. There's, there's just no information on it. Um, did Paul learn of the shroud? Uh, did he hear about it, or did he actually see it himself? If he heard about it, when and where? And how much did he hear about it? Did he learn of its, of its image, or only that it was the burial shroud of Jesus? Uh, if he saw it, did he see it? unfolded? Uh, did he see its image or only see it in a case uh, folded up in a box? Uh, uh, did he see it early in his career or later? We just don't know the answers to those questions. So uh, uh, it remains a mystery and I don't think anyone can really answer it. Even if Paul did see the trout image at one time, I don't think for a moment that he would actually have taken it along with him on such a monumental missionary uh, journey uh, to the to the West. So uh, that's, uh, and I don't think uh, other Christian leaders would have allowed him to do so either, nor Peter. Peter did not own the shroud. It was a communal property. And that's about all I have 
to say on that. Uh, could say a whole lot more, but uh, yeah, no, thank you, thank you so much for presenting your side of this because I think it's important to know. Look, uh, John, John is uh, overall he's on the pro shroud side, as he said. He believes the shroud is historically authentic, but he differs with myself or or Larry Stolly and Jack Mark Wart and stuff. He, he doesn't think it's mentioned in the biblical text, so it's important uh, you raise substantive considerations that need to be looked at there. So, yeah, uh, thank you so much for presenting that. And I know that you've also got a presentation because now we're going to flip uh, places, so to speak, because I also, in my um, Shrub Panel Review Show Part 2A, um, believe it or not, I was a little bit of a, I'm a kind of a Shroud, on the Shroud skeptic side, I'm skeptical of references to the Abgar legend as proof uh, for Shroud images being shown. And but John takes uh, has made a, a scholarly argument in a paper arguing that no, we should trust the the Eusebius reference as a, a real possibility to to quote his words that this is referencing shroud images. So, uh, yeah, John, I, I know you've got a, a, sh a presentation on that aspect. So I'll let you go, and um, I'll just show show up if I've got questions as you go. Sure. Yeah. Please do. Please do, Dale. I, I appreciate your comments and questions. They're always good ones. So, awesome. uh, yeah, I'll uh, take a much shorter time on this uh, second topic of Eusebius and his mention of the vision of King Abgar. Um, it's a, a fourth century text, early fourth century, around the year 300 to 325. And uh, uh, I might say uh, also in this regard, uh, 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 Dale has invited me kindly to uh, present my my views. Uh, he actually uh, invited me twice before on the show, very nicely. Well, first time a year ago in November of 2022, and then last April 2023. And uh, so I'm glad to, to accept the invitation. I haven't uh, invited myself in any of these cases, so... I can uh, claim that. Um, let's see then. Uh, there's a similarity actually between the Galatians claim and my own claim in that uh, we are looking at cryptic texts from the first, centru uh, first centuries of uh, Christian history. And we're wondering if they involve the Turin Shroud. Um, in the case of my uh, claim about Eusebius and his passage on the vision of King Abgar, I, I would say from the outset, I would say uh, that geographically, there's no problem at all with that because we know from later history that there was this image of Edessa, a real, true, physical image of Edessa, namely a face of Jesus in the city of Edessa. And in the legend of King Abgar, that is where the vision also takes place. So there's no geographical discrepancy at all. Um, also, there is uh, no, well, there is a, a close similarity between the uh, privacy that was involved in showing the, uh, or I should say, the privacy of the vision in the legend of King Abgar and the assumed secrecy of the shroud in 
the first few centuries of the Christian era. Um, so uh, we don't have the legend of King Abgar. We don't have uh, the shroud being displayed openly and publicly to the common folk, the populace. So those are two strong points. Uh, I might mention too, uh, uh, I started that article back uh, in 2019. I was simply trying, uh, because of my background in history, to uh, fill in the second or third century gap in the history of the Turin Shroud, uh, based on an old hunch that I had uh, many years before. Uh, also, a strong note of caution runs through my article, as opposed to the, the ones that we've just talked about concerning Galatians. Um, I did begin by thinking that the Turin Shroud was probably identical with the vision of King Abgar in the church history writings of Eusebius, circa 300. Uh, but then as I researched it, I uh, came to a more modest uh, uh, conclusion that, that uh, uh, one could not yet say probable, but still, still say that it, uh, it was a respectable, strong possibility or a real possibility. And that was good enough for me. Okay, I think uh, too many people in the Shroud field and other fields claim probabilities for their uh, pet theories when they really should not. Uh, so uh, let's see, moving on, I'll try to make this fast here. Uh, um, just let me say, go ahead. Uh, just let me know if you want me to share the screen. Um, oh, sure. Yeah, let's see. Which, uh, maybe the uh, actual passage itself, Dale, from Eusebius? Uh, okay. So, and uh, the, the passage refers to a first century King Abgar. Um, however, in my article, I did not necessarily uh, pin uh, the, uh, the source down to that original King Abgar V of the mid first century uh, in the legend. Uh, to me, uh, some other Abgar or uh, someone else entirely could have been involved what really concerned me was what Eusebius might have been writing, uh, revealing in a disguised or garbled form about the Turin Shroud having come to Edessa uh, in the first or maybe second or even third century. Um, that's all I, I was aiming for. Uh, and I'll, I'll go silent here for a few seconds so that people can read these sentences. Uh, You want, you want me to read it or? Uh, let's see. Or maybe I could, I, I suppose, yeah. Or if you like, Dale, go right ahead. Uh, maybe start with, uh, let's start at the top there. Okay. All right. So as for Eusebius, then, his passage on Abgar's vision is brief, only two or three sentences long. In the version given by Professor J.B. Siegel in his landmark 1970 work, Edessa, the Blessed City, on page 64, we read the following. So Tobias rose up early the next day, and taking Thaddeus, came to Abgar. Now as he went up, while the king's grandees were standing present, as soon as he entered, a great vision, or wonderful vision, appeared to Abgar on the face of the apostle Thaddeus. And when Abgar saw this, he did reverence to Thaddeus, and wonder held all who were standing by, 
for they had not seen the vision which appeared only to Abgar. Readers familiar with the Shroud of Turin will recognize certain similarities between its image and this wonderful vision or great vision seen by Abgar. Both, uh, both are visual phenomena, somewhat difficult to see, and rather prominently involve a face. The shroud traditionally considered, traditionally considered the burial shroud of Jesus bears a remarkable image of, of him, which is faint, and his face is the most impressive part of it. Fine, yeah, thank you very much, Dale. Thanks. Um, so then that's a very skimpy little excerpt from uh, the article. It's actually about 17 pages long, uh, so it has a lot more information and, and backup uh, evidence. Um, it, it is more detailed about Eusebius and the Shroud than any uh, any previous article. Um, it's a minor subject, uh, you know, it's not uh, one of the big topics in the field, but it, it's a very uh, mysterious and intriguing one. Um, again, as I mentioned, the, the geographical evidence is very strong. Oh yeah, there's a, an artistic uh, representation. Now what these show, interestingly, uh, uh, is the uh, shroud itself being presented. Uh, they don't show depictions of the vision. So uh, the one uh, Byzantine, uh, this is a probably 19th, uh, 20th century depiction here. Um, but the other one, Dale, that you showed, that one there goes back to, I believe, the 10th century. Um, so, but it was in any case a late, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, depiction of the scene of Thaddeus coming to King Abgar. Uh, so it was a, um, a depiction of not the vision, not the vision, but the actual Shroud of Turin or the, as you see there, just the facial image. It's uh, shortened a uh, folded up version of mm -hmm. the face. We think, we think, some of us. So uh, there's that. Let's see. Um, another uh, strong point, as I mentioned before, I think, uh, is the, the privacy or the secrecy involved in the scene. It's a private vision, not a public showing to the common people. Um, as regards the linguistic evidence that I present, there's like four or five different points of congruence between the Turin Shroud and the vision of Babgar. Um, if I had seen just one or two uh, points of congruence, I would not have bothered even uh, researching it, but there were several. Uh, three of them are here in that excerpt from Eusebius, and then there are two or three others as well. Um, lots of new insights uh, about other issues. Uh, the uh, legendary painting of Jesus mentioned in the later version of the legend, uh, uh, called the Doctrine of Adai, and so on and so forth. Uh, let's see. I might now address your uh, objections specifically, and they were good objections, and we agreed on a lot of things. Uh, in general, we, we agreed that uh, the case was not had not reached that of a probability, but uh, it was very possible, uh, quite plausible, uh, a case for the identification of the shroud with the uh, vision of King Abgar. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm grateful for your comments there. Uh, you mentioned that you were not uh, 
persuaded by my suggestion that the phrase in Eusebius about Abgar alone perceiving the vision uh, was an allusion to the hazy, uh, diffuse, indistinct figure on the Turin Shroud. Uh, I still think that it may well be such an illusion. Um, many other researchers and authors in the field have noted similar uh, cases of, of hazy uh, or references to a hazy figure in the early Shroud history and have interpreted them so. Um, and that's what we see on the Turin Shroud, of course, a very unclear outlined figure. Uh, so there's that. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, you mentioned, too, that to, to you it wasn't remarkable that the vision involved the apostle of Jesus. And, uh, and uh, it seemed perfectly natural. Uh, you said that. Apostles are normal figures to find in such early legendary stories. Uh, that is true. However, uh, I tried to present the whole complex of related points as a, as a cluster, um, each one of them providing uh, support to each other in a, in a mutual way. And again, the uh, Edessa location is really crucial. Uh, Thaddeus doesn't show up in just any city uh, in the Middle East, but rather he shows up there in Edessa, which is where the image of Edessa uh, eventually came to be uh, found, present, uh, and uh, historically uh, determined as having been there at least by the 6th century and very possibly before. That's the whole point of my article. Um, let's see here. Dale, you mentioned also uh, that the Jerusalem crucifixion and resurrection details, which are mentioned in the legend of King Abgar, uh, are actually a key part of the Jesus story and therefore not so surprising to appear in such a legend. And you're quite right, uh, that is true. Uh, those factors are major ones, the major ones in the story of Jesus. But of course, there are also many others. Uh, the Gospels are full of uh, the life story of Jesus, his birth, his baptism, uh, the disciples coming into his life, the, uh, uh, the miracles, and so on. Uh, concern for the poor, all of his parables, uh, especially Luke and Matthew, they're full of the parables of Jesus. And none of all that is mentioned in the legend of King Abgar. It's all focused only the, the few sentences that uh, go into Jesus are about his uh, passion and, uh, and resurrection. So that seems remarkable to me. And I think uh, it reflects the background factor, or it might reflect the background factor of the Turin Shroud behind that legend. So... Uh, there's that. You mentioned that uh, uh, the experience of Abgar being a vision is not so unusual either. And I agree. Uh, there are many cases in the Bible and in the legends of religious uh, visions. Uh, but there are also, as I point out in my article, there are also many, many cases of uh, purely acoustic experiences when someone hears the voice of God or an angel 
uh, many cases of uh, what you might call uh, uh, tangible or touching uh, experiences where people are gripped by the hand of God or an angel and held. So we might say there's a 50-50 chance of the experience of Abgar being uh, a, a visual one, a vision. Um, and in addition to that, um, of course, it occurs in an odd place. It's not a vision seen in the sky or, or somewhere else. Uh, many visions, I think most all of them, almost all of them uh, are not localized in the Bible and elsewhere. It's just said that someone sees a vision suddenly. Well, in Eusebius, what we have is this strange case of a vision which is not defined and it's uh, it's uh, said to be on the face of the Apostle Thaddeus. That's a weird scene and I know uh, that you too find that very strange and very intriguing and you, you've wondered what that's about and I think it could be a, a garbled version of uh, Thaddeus or whoever first brought the shroud to Edessa having held it up in front of someone and uh, uh, maybe folded up, held it up, and people could behold the face of Jesus, which is the most prominent part of the shroud, of course. Um, so there's that bit of evidence. So uh, let's see here. Uh, I think that's about all. I've got other material here, but we're getting on to, uh, we've just finished about one hour here. Uh, if you have any more comments, uh, Dale, uh, I welcome them. Yeah, just so just to back up, kind of as, as people know if they saw my previous episode. So I, I agree that um, at least on the first three points, like the timing, uh, you know, related to the crucifixion, the involvement of Adai in Edessa, and that sort of thing. I, I don't think these in and of themselves. I mean, it, it's plausible, and sure they. You know, it's kind of a falsification test. They could have gotten it otherwise, but I don't think in and of themselves they prove one way or the other. Um, the two points that I think move the scales for me are, number one, there is this good argument that you mentioned about Abgar. The vision is said to be on the face. And I looked at other literature and, and stuff from Craig Keener and other scholars and stuff about visions, uh, 12th Tree and stuff like that. And it isn't described as being on the face. So that is a very curious thing. I think perhaps counts in your, in your favor as, as a shroud interpretation there. Um, and as you mentioned, I, I really think the real defeater is the fact that it, the text says the others didn't see the vision. I don't think this is, I think it's improbable to be a, uh, a reference to the shroud's image diffuseness. I don't think that's what Eusebius is saying here, or, or the Abgar legend is saying here. So you, you've kind of summarized my position and given your counters to that. Um, I just want to ask you one one question because you Please. mentioned um, Okay, so now Jack Markwart, um, a, a friend of both of ours, he, he kind of says, well, look, I, I will agree with you, John, that the Abgar legends are based on the shroud images. So, you know, Dale, you're wrong to be skeptical that these are about the shroud images. They are. But, John, you've messed it up. The, the Abgar legend is 
is messed up. The Shroud never went to Edessa, it went to Antioch, and it wasn't until King Abgar the Eighth came around that they brought the Shroud to Edessa. They showed Abgar the Eighth at the time of his conversion, and then later on, these you know garbled uh, the Abgar legend got garbled up and got attributed to Abgar the Fifth. So I just wanted to get your your take on Jack's notion. Do you think that the Abgar legend could be explained by being shown the shroud being shown to Abgar the Eighth instead of Abgar the Fifth? Uh, yeah, what's your take on that take? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you have three hours, <laughs> okay. we can go into that. Uh, just kidding. Uh, briefly, though, it's a vast subject actually, uh, and I'm still wrestling with it. it it's rather complicated. Uh, this new theory of Jack's has only been around, I think, for maybe he started working on it 10, 10 years ago, just came out with a book only just three years ago. So um, I've been wading through parts of it. Uh, I, I don't find uh, much of his evidence in the early chapters to be very convincing. Um, I think he, he takes liberties with many of his sources and uses them in questionable ways. Uh, but uh, others, in other cases, uh, his his procedure seems uh, pretty valid to me. So, um, <clears throat> but actually, we do agree, uh, and I write that in in the article itself. I'm not sure if you've had time to read the article, but I openly declare on uh, already on page one, and uh, on page uh, two or three other pages in the article that um, that Antioch theory may be correct. Uh, in that case, the Shroud did not go directly to uh, Edessa in the first century, but rather it went up to Antioch, stayed there for uh, uh, almost 200 years, 150, was brought then briefly to Edessa for a week or two or three for a ceremonial uh, <clears throat> conversion of King Abgar VIII in about 192, um, and then was taken back to uh, Antioch. Uh, the problem is that the sources are, are really very skimpy. Uh, it's hard to, uh, uh, it, it, they're just not solid enough for me. Uh, it's a definite possibility though. So I don't contradict it at, at all. Uh, I just say, uh, I wish there were more evidence there. And I look forward in the future, maybe if I have time, I've got a lot of other things going on. But if I have time, I would like to spend uh, uh, several weeks uh, studying that in depth. So, um, and, and Jack does actually believe that the, uh, just to be clear, uh, that the vision of Abgar was a veiled reference to the Turin Shroud. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, obviously. Obviously we're at the, over the one hour mark. So I, I will end as promised here. So. Thank you so much for coming on and, and giving your take, uh, even when I disagree with it. I, I think it's important. Hey, I'm not infallible. Maybe I've gotten something wrong. So thank you for uh, correcting the record and sharing your reasoning, your perspectives on these things and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So, Yeah, thanks, Dale. I uh, appreciate it very much. Uh, no problem. Awesome. Awesome. So cool. So yeah, uh, great. Uh, you know, have a Merry Christmas to the audience. And I am supposed to be on my vacation. That doesn't look like that's going to happen. I'm going to have to probably wait till February to get my
Christmas vacation. So, so next week, um, I am working on a follow-up to my show Messian on Messianic Prophecies. Uh, Michael Lofton asked me to do a little bit more detail on Daniel chapter 9 and specifically refuting the Maccabean thesis that it refers to the times of Antiochus Epiphanes or uh, Onias III in the you know, 170s and 160s BC. So uh, yeah, I've got that coming up next week and then a uh, bunch of other shows in the new year. So uh, yeah, you, you don't get rid of me until February. I, I guess no vacation for me. So yeah, um, have a great week, everyone. And Merry Christmas to everybody.